Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. I'm your host, David Shuck. Today, we are doing an interview with Mr. John Gluckow, who is an expert on many things, and most of all, zippers. John knows uh, the zipper game backwards and forwards and is an avid collector of vintage and rare zippers who is going to give us the whole rundown on the story of zippers from their inception to their closure. Um, Although I guess zippers haven't really closed because uh, we're still using zippers today. But uh, John is, uh, you might know him from either his vintage brand, Strongarm, or also his a new collection of John Gluckow Ancient and Modern Clothing. So hope you enjoy the interview here. I learned a lot about zippers, and I'm sure you will too. Oh, John, thanks so much for for coming on, and uh, appreciate you taking the time this morning. Sure thing. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're here to talk zippers, but uh, I know that you've had a, a life that's much fuller than that in both vintage dealing and designing your own brand. So I was hoping to talk a little bit about your background before we uh, dug into the meat of it. Okay. So uh, I, I was always interested in clothing, um, interested in fashion growing up, uh, and coming out of college, uh, was, was thrift shopping, flea marketing a lot just for my own clothes. And, um, eventually was, um, was finding things that, that maybe weren't necessarily for me, but that I knew were, that had value and, and, um, I started buying them and, and selling initially to double RL, uh, which had just opened up at the time in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like early nineties. Yep. 93, 94. Um, mm. and when I came, moved, moved back into Manhattan to go to FIT, uh, found myself selling at the flea market, uh, at 25th street initially just to get rid of some things that I had, had left over. Um, but realizing what was going on there at, at three, four, five in the morning when I was never there before, um, how much energy and, and, uh, how much merchandise was coming out at that hour. Uh, just got hooked and um, ended up putting myself through school as a vintage clothing dealer and then uh, working in design for a couple of years after that, but still keeping my keeping my hands in, in vintage and eventually leaving my design job and going full-time as a vintage clothing dealer. So is there any particular genre of vintage that you specialized in or that you gravitated towards initially? Basically like utility clothing. So, you know, and that's a pretty broad category, you know, anything like workwear, military, outdoor, hunting, sporting, all that kind of stuff is, is mainly what I focus on. And that was what you gravitated towards initially in the early nineties and what you started selling to double RL. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was, so I was working at the, at the Ralph Lawrence store on 72nd street. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, I could wear either Ralph Lauren or I could wear vintage and I couldn't afford that much Ralph Lauren. So I was supplementing my wardrobe with a lot of vintage, which in that store I had to wear more dandy dressy clothing. So that was what Mm -hmm. I was buying. But, um, for myself, uh, personally I was, I was, uh, more attracted to, to the utility 
utility stuff. And and when RRL launched, that was sort of more the focus of RRL. So those were the kinds of things that I was able to sell to them. How did you put, I guess, the two together of uh, were things that you had sourced for vintage for RRL, were those being sold in the store? Or were these the uh, model garments that were being used to reproduce the collection? At that time, I was selling uh, things to them that were being uh, sold, resold in the store. Um, mm-hmm. And a, a few years later, when I started doing it full time, um, actually, when I finished FIT, I, I, well, while I was at FIT, I had an internship there and was bringing things in for design purposes. And, and when I finished FIT and worked there for a couple of years, was bringing a lot of things in for design. And then when I, when I left that job and went full-time with Vintage, um, built uh, a much wider um, group of customers buying for design. So a lot of the other, other usual suspects you'd think of, like um, J. Crew and Abercrombie and companies like that. Which is a piece that I think a lot of uh, people don't realize of how much of current collections is just you know regurgitations of other vintage garments and you know the, how cyclical it really is. Yeah, I mean it's everything from from straight up regurgitation, uh, which I think a lot of people will recognize, to a lot of even you know avant garde brands that are that are really doing design work, but but are still inspired by a lot of vintage details and things like that. Mm-hmm. You're picking out things of like, oh, this is how a tab collar is put together, or this is the way a pocket stitched on, or uh, something like that. Something very small. Sure. Uh, how did you make the transition there from dealing vintage into designing and uh, doing your own collection? Uh, so, I was working as a primarily as a vintage dealer for maybe 15 years, and then um, a Japanese customer that I had been selling to for a while. Um, who had his own brand asked me if I wanted to start a brand in my name, uh, which um, it, it's basically a licensing agreement. So I design everything. Um, he he produces the samples. He produces the products. Um, we have an exhibition twice a year over in Japan. Um, it's mostly still sold within Japan. Um, we are mm-hmm. branching out a little bit outside of Japan. But for the moment, it's still mostly sold in Japan. Sounds like a nice setup. Of uh, yeah, it's worked. Is, it's worked really well so far. Yeah, that uh, production is often the, the hardest part, from my understanding, or at least the few things that I've produced for for heddles. Uh, so to have that all, you know, all those ducks lined up already is uh, yeah, the, the, it seems nice. <laughs> we still run into pr- plenty of problems, but uh, yeah, but it's 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 a lot easier this way. Speaking of vintage detailing, um, I've heard many people speak to your expertise on zippers, which is sort of the the impetus for uh, reaching out for this interview. Could you explain how you got uh, became fascinated or sort of became a, a zipper person? It, it just happened sort of organically in, in in finding things in my you know my first few years of of, of vintage hunting, just seeing the differences in certain zippers and, and especially when I started to see earlier, earlier zippers. Uh, if you look at zippers from the forties on, they kind of look like they do today. But mm-hmm. when you get to zippers from the thirties and twenties, there are a lot of differences that, that you don't see around much today. Um, so when I started seeing those things and realizing, well, there's something different going on here, you know, 
why and, and what is it telling me? Um, I got, I just got, I got very curious about it and started, you know, paying a lot more attention because the more, the more information I had about what I was selling, the more I could sell it for. And, you know, the more information I could pass on to the person I was selling it to. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because you, you shared some pictures with me of some of the early zippers that you have in your collection. And yeah, they, they look like these sort of steampunk, uh, gothic, like really intimidating, almost creations, uh, as opposed to the everyday zipper that you see, you know, in any garment today. Yeah, for sure. And a, a lot of those really never made it into, into practical clothing. Um, those were like the early days when, when they were still figuring it all out. And um, I've honestly never found a garment. Uh, if you're talking about like the security and the Playco, I've never yeah. actually found a garment with one of those zippers sewn into it. Yeah, those are all separate. As you mentioned, the, the security had to be removed before each washing because it would right. rust otherwise. Right. If you wanted to wash the garment, you, had, you were supposed to take the zipper out and then sew it back in. <laughs> a lot of a lot of work to do. <laughs> I can see why it didn't catch on. I was like, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, is this a thing that like they buttoned the zippers in so then they could zipper them like uh, up in the moment and then have them removed easily? So they were made for homes. They weren't even made at that point. They weren't expecting factories to buy them and, and to mm -hmm. use them. They were, they were they were marketing them to home sewers, and and a lot of the clothing back then, especially like you know, if you were sewing into a wool suit into the fly of a, of a man's suit or into a, a woman's skirt, you probably weren't washing those clothes very often. <laughs> um, no. And when you find those clothes, you know, nowadays you could tell from the smell of them a lot of times that they, they, they were worn over and over again without being washed. Uh, so, um, the zipper has the tag on it. Dry clean only. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Dry clean has been around for a long, long, long time. So, um, that, that, I guess would have been an option, although dry cleaning is actually mm -hmm. kind of wet, also. So, but it's not water, so I'm not sure how it would have affected the zipper. Could you take us back to the beginning here? Just in my rudimentary understanding of zippers, that they were something that came about in the late 1800s and took a while to get going. I guess as we're talking about, you know, some of these zippers weren't used for commercial use at all. Right. But uh, you know, where did the zipper come from, and how did it first? Uh, what was its first iteration? So there were a few different um, inventors working on things like the zipper uh, in the late 1800s. Um, one of them was Whitcomb Judson, who had already patented a few different ideas. Uh, one for one for a train car that actually um, had some traction. Um, but in 1891, he submitted a patent to the U.S. Patent Office for what, what he called the clasp locker. And I, I guess at this time, boots that buttoned were were very popular, and it, it must have seemed a tedious thing to him. And he decided that rather than um, buttoning up his boots, what if he could create some device that that you could just slide up and it would close mm -hmm. the boots up? So um, he his patent his patent uh, application was for a shoe closure, but it also listed some other things like. Um, mail bags or security bags, um, uh, things like that, where you'd be closing up, uh, something made with a soft fabric that could be, that could be zipped. So he developed the patent at that point and was it used for those purposes or, yeah, and this was what, 1890, 1880? The application was 1891 mm -hmm. and it took a few years to be, uh, to be approved. And 
at that time, you didn't need to submit a model with your patent application. So everything, mm-hmm. everything he submitted with it was, was theoretical. It was on paper. Um, then mm-hmm. he got to the, to the part of trying to actually manufacture it. Um, and so uh, through, through the 1890s, he had several investors who worked with him and, and the company moved around from Chicago to Ohio to Pennsylvania and eventually uh, to Hoboken, New Jersey. And um, there were a, a few different variations on what he was trying to produce. The first one that they ever had any success with uh, was um, a design which they uh, offered to the postal service for use on bags, and they got an order for they got an order for uh, I think it was eighteen or twenty zippers. But when they de- when they delivered them. The postal service basically said these are useless. We can't, we can't really get them to function, and uh, and they never saw any more orders after that. Uh, uh, what did this first zipper look like? Because from some of the designs that I saw, the images of it's like it's basically made of wire, and it's like wire hooking on to the other side of it, sort of like a chain, more than it would be you know, the interlocking teeth that we think of as zippers today. Exactly, that's the one that that they that they made for the postal service. So it's like hooks combination of hooks and eyes and the slider was supposed to take the, the hook from one side and, and, and deliver it into the eye of the other side and this would go back and forth but the problem was once it was closed any kind of bending of the fabric actually reopened all the eyes oh because the the, the wire that was uh, on the hook wasn't strong enough to keep it closed yeah there was just no there was no tension the hooks the hooks and eyes were, were the the, the if you go vertically up the chain of, uh, of hooks and eyes, there was too much space between them. There was no pressure to keep them closed. Uh, so if you press them together, just all the tension would have been lost and they would have come undone. Right. So if you, if you imagine that on a piece of clothing, if, you, if, if a woman had this on her, on her skirt and she bent over, it was, pop- mm-hmm. it was popping open. Right. Not what you want. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what was this um, fastener called? It was uh, was there any name for it? It wasn't referred to as a zipper at this point, in my understanding. His patent application was for a mechanism he called the clasp locker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that they ever came up with any other name for it as a as a uh, as a merch as a piece of merchandise because they really never got that far to, to promoting it. Or market. Mm. The company at that time was called Universal Fastener Company. Mm-hmm. Which vintage heads will know, and I guess like repro vintage heads will know <laughs> that it's a name that you can still see on tabs and uh, all over the place. I think that's actually a, a different Universal. I think I think oh. I think later on there was another Universal Fastener, which was which focused on snaps, because this company actually disappeared, maybe even before 1900 i think they changed the name at some point to automatic hook and eye which was more of a, uh-huh. more of a description of what they were actually trying to make so uh-huh. um universal fastener that is being used today i think refers to a company that came along a little later mm-hmm. automatic hook and eye that's, that's a much snappier name <laughs> it's at least it, it sort of describes the product when you hear yeah. when you hear it you kind of have an idea of what they're talking about uh, how did we get from the uh, hook and eye to something that looks more recognizable? Or were there like intermediate steps in between? I'm sure. Imagining, you know, those uh, 
like early uh, fish hybrids that walk on land in the like there you go. in evolution, and then you have all these like failed uh, like side roads before you actually get to the zipper that we use today. Yeah. So in 1905, uh, Wickham Judson came up with this his uh, the next variation, which was called Security, uh, mm-hmm. and that and was the, the letter C, Curity. Right. Letter C hyphen Curity in 19. 19- Six, they brought on a new designer, an, an engineer named Gideon Sunback, who improved mm-hmm. the security. And in 1908 or 1909, they came out with another variation of it called the Playco, which, for the most part, they look the same. They're they're again, they're a, a series of of hooks and eyes. One side has all hooks, the other side has all eyes, and they're much closer together, so that they 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 had a lot more success in terms of keeping it closed. But there were still pro- a lot of problems with it, the rust, and um, and it would still, under certain kinds of kinds of tension and pressure, it would still pop open. I imagine the manufacturing of these zippers, considering all the small parts that had to be uh, relatively consistent, was fairly difficult, especially on the small scale that these would have been produced. Yeah, uh, for these new inventors. Yeah, and and they had to com- you know they had to completely create machinery from scratch to to produce the parts. And then to clamp them onto the fabric, uh, so it, it was a lot of. And, and there were problems with the machines. Um, they had to have, they had to have machinists on staff full time because the machines constantly broke. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there were all kinds of problems they were running into. It was really a, a labor of love for some of these early folks that uh, kept driving ahead. It's kind of crazy to think how much money they spent and how much how much the investors how long they hung hung around to try and make it work um, for such a, a novel idea that, that, you know, if you had buttons, you didn't necessarily need a zipper. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. like there was some dire need for it. Uh, do you know who was funding all this? So there were, there were two main investors. Um, one from the very early days named Harry Earl, uh, who I think met Judson at the, um, at the 1893, um, World's Fair in Chicago, uh, mm. where he first presented the class blocker, um, and he hung around uh, all the way until 1906. Um, and even after that, apparently he sold his he sold his, his his ownership share, but but still hung around the office all the time, um, just you know keeping his hand in, in it to see where it went. Um, and then uh, Colonel Walker was a um, uh, an investor from Pennsylvania who came in a little later, maybe, maybe around 1900 and saw it through the rest of the way. Um, he, he had a lot of money and, and, uh, had already, um, invested in several other inventions. Um, he had money that came from, uh, his marriage and, uh, and he had pretty much carte blanche to, to invest it as he wanted to. Um, so he, he's, he was a big, uh, a big factor in seeing it through to to the hookless days. The angel investor of the zipper, the early zipper era. There it is. Yes, I'm just imagining. You know, is it like you're, you're describing a period of like decades between when this was first invented and when it became something that was usable. And thinking of like, oh, did this guy like <clears throat> did his dad like choke on a button or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really, it's really amazing that they actually hung in there that long 
you should think you think with most invention inventions you think of that like sort of that spark moment where the inventor comes up with an idea and and you never really you don't really think that it will take them 20 or 30 years to turn that idea into a practical use mm-hmm. but in this case um and again without without any dire need it didn't fill some niche that was like desperately missing but nowadays you know you pretty much couldn't imagine going through life without it uh, what got us to that point of uh how did the the zipper move from being these rusty uh unusable things to something that was actually practical and effective and you know the cost was worth it so in 1913 um sunback now the the head designer um came up with uh, a new concept of um of teeth that mesh together as opposed to hooks and eyes and they'd be very close together so they wouldn't separate and 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 each one would would tie into the one above it so there was no there was no gap between them there were no separate um parts the very first iteration of that the hookless number 1 was never commercially made but but it got him it got him in, it tr- to transition from the idea of the hook and eye over to the idea of teeth um Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, he he patented in 1917 this the, what was called the separable fastener. Um, and in 1918, they got their first order of hookless of hookless fasteners from a company that made flight suits. And mm. w- one of the, one of the things I read um, in 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 uh, researching the zipper was was the idea that uh, when you're inventing something. And it's an, and it's a completely new new item in the market, um, and you need you need money to produce it, offer it to the government, and find some way the government needs it. So, mm-hmm. so they they brought it to the military, and the military um, uh, gave them orders for for these flight suits. Um, are examples of these flight suits? What did they look like? Are they sort of the 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 same concept of the you know uh, olive drab jumpsuit? that you imagine like in Top Gun or did they look very different? Uh, I mean, basically, basically they were, uh, they were an all in one kind of suit like that. But, um, with, you know, at that time everything was open cockpit. So they were very insulated. Mm -hmm. They were very thick. Um, a lot of them had, um, had like alpaca linings. Um, they, they typically had an asymmetrical front opening. They kind of, the earlier ones buttoned up to the shoulder. Um, Mm eventually they zipped up to the shoulder uh, as opposed to just zipping straight up the center. Um, and they would often have like a, a one very big pocket right in the chest, uh, which everybody calls a map pocket. But um, I'm not sure if that was actually what uh, guys were using it for. The older ones, again, would button down the legs. Later on, they put zippers in the legs, uh, even zippers in the fly. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have to take off your whole suit. Um, so they sold them as many zippers as they possibly could on you know every yeah you get like five or six zippers into one garment yeah every opening of this garment yeah do any of those um, flight suits still survive have you seen any uh, examples of them I have some examples in my collection from the twenties um, I I don't know that I've ever seen the very earliest one from the teens uh, but I imagine that the uh, that the Smithsonian might have. The Smithsonian has a really amazing collection of all sorts of military clothing, mm-hmm. uh, flight clothing, um, and they they probably have the the teens one. 
And this is typical, I guess, in our industry. If the military is using it, then we all will be using it about 10 years later. Uh, was that the case with zippers on flight suits versus zippers on in normal civilian clothing? So just about, um, the, you know, the, the first the first military use was 1918. And in 1927, Lee was, Lee was putting them in overalls and, and, um, and flight suits and, uh, and coveralls. Uh, and occasionally in jeans, um, and and mm-hmm. in, in between in between 1918 and, and 1927, uh, other companies started finding uses for them. Uh, Goodrich put them in their in their rubber rain boots in 1923, and that's that's where the name zipper came from. They started Goodrich was the um, first company to call them zippers. Mm, they were still uh, hookless fasteners or hook and eye fasteners before that. Hookless fasteners, yeah. You'll see you'll see hookless fasteners as a description in catalogs, even after the name was changed to Talon, um, that, that name, mm-hmm. that name stuck around, stuck around for a long time. Uh, and zipper was something that Goodyear coined and then just everybody jumped onto. <laughs> Did they have a copyright on that or was it just a, a sort of common term? Uh, honestly, I don't know if they copyrighted it. I don't, I don't, I don't know that they could have unless they did it in conjunction with hookless. Um, I think it was just mm-hmm. sort of a, a term that, you know, became commonplace maybe from their advertising, um, and and the name obviously like you know sort of inspired by the by the sound or the feel of of zipping it up. Hmm. Just a, a marketing gimmick that uh, caught on, right? Lee jeans were the first ones to use a zipper on the fly, as opposed to I guess the the uh, flight suit that you just mentioned. They had zipper flies, but the first one for like a je- pair of jeans with a zipper fly was Lee. So for jeans, yes, uh, but. Um, Men's pants, men's trousers uh, was was one of the original ideas that um, that Judson had for where where the where where the uh, zipper could be used, where the security. He, his intention was that security and Placo would be used in the fly of men's trousers. There's a story mm-hmm. that there's a story that um, I think it was Colonel Walker's brother went to a wore a pair of trousers with a security fly and went to a, a very important. Uh, dinner party, and uh, and and the fly broke <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the dinner party, and and he had to, he had to he came home with a bunch of pins holding his fly closed, which I think in in at that time was was probably a pretty big embarrassment. Yeah, but the boys at Hookless got it after that one. Yeah, I think so. Like when the zippers on flies were they the still enormous chunky looking things because. Uh, that we're seeing in these early examples, or did they slim down and become more compact as zipper technology improved? The Playco and Security were weren't so bulky. Um, they were they were they were not too. The teeth on those were not too much bigger than a than a zipper nowadays. They just didn't have the flexibility um, that our zippers have. Um, mm. Some of the when, when they transitioned from that to teeth. Some of the other some of the other designs that other companies came up with had much bigger had much bigger teeth. Um, maybe those are some of the ones I sent you that you saw pictures of, like the the palm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those were those were being used more in jackets and in bags than in, than in in um, pants. Uh, what was the reaction of the everyday person to a zipper? Was it seen as something like what they would have to pay more for on a zippered garment versus a buttoned garment? Um, were there any like anti-zipper reactionaries? It definitely increased the price of of clothing. Um, 
So it was definitely a, a something that, that the, the companies who were using them needed to sell. They really needed to promote the idea that this is going to benefit you in some way. It's easier to it's easier to put it on, or it's going to give you more protection from the cold, from the wind, from dust. Um, so, for example, in with work clothing for like railroad men, you see a lot mm-hmm. of early advertising talk about how um, how how one company's cuffs or or um, or button or front design would keep the dust out from the, from the from the coal work on the train, and and the the zipper was promoted in that way too. That you know, if you have the zipper fastener on the front of your your work clothes, it's going to keep it's going to keep the dust out. Mm-hmm. It was marketed purely for utility at first. Uh, yeah, mainly. Yeah. Instead of the the ease of of using it, now the ease too. Um, you know, a lot easier to a lot easier to pull up one zipper than to button six or seven buttons. Although I'm not mm-hmm. sure how you know, in practicality, how much time does that save you, or how how much easier is it? But that was how they tried to promote it. Hmm. And at this time, were there other companies that were popping up that were selling zippers, or was the the hookless one patented to the point where um, they could sit on that model and uh, reap in the rewards of their decades of hard work for quite some time? No, there were definitely other companies that copied it and tried to tried to get competing designs patented, and 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 some of them had success. Um, some of them had uh, there were a lot there were a lot of other companies in the twenties. Um, some of them made it into the thirties and some of them, some of them stuck around for a very long time, like crown, um, walds, mm-hmm. uh, walds made, uh, uh, zippers for the military, w- w- which actually, um, they're called the cover zip and it actually has fabric that covered the teeth on the outside, much like you see nowadays on like technical clothing. It's basically the same idea, but it's not, it wasn't as uh, waterproof or windproof as what you see today, but, um, they were making that in the thirties. And, um, so, so there were companies trying to, trying to compete with, with hookless and trying to improve on the idea as well. Uh, so that's sort of like, you know, in an Arc'teryx technical jacket, you'll see the like tape over the zipper. So that's like Gore-Tex or something that's covering everything, but that seam that's forced together. So it makes it exactly uh, waterproof. Yep, exactly. Well, that's a, a much older invention than <laughs> at least I realized. Yeah, yeah, they were doing that. They were doing that in the 30s and 40s. You didn't see it used a whole lot, and it wasn't used really all that much for technical clothing. Um, and then it disappeared for a long time, and, and now all of a sudden, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, you started to see the idea come out again. Well, when did the Wild West days of zippers? end and when everyone I guess sort of agreed upon what the zipper was and and things evened out to the point where uh, you had widestream accept or mainstream acceptance well I think through the 30s the the design the design um, was basically accepted and 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 you saw you really didn't see any more companies trying to come up with with different ways to do the same thing um, mm-hmm. so all but by the by the mid 30s maybe all the companies were Making essentially the same sort of you know teeth uh, and slider that, slider that put them together, um, and again it's, it's the government and the military. But uh, in World War II, uh, the, the the government, the army, and the navy uh, both used zippers uh, in a lot of the, in a lot of their um, flight clothing and 
clothing in general, bags. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, by the end of the war, certainly um, it was it was being used widely uh, by civilian companies for for regular clothing, and you you still see a lot of button fly and button front clothing through the f- uh, through the fifties and 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 even in the sixties, but it, it just it, over that over that period of time the balance shifted more and more and more towards zippers. There's also the I guess the eternal debate in denim of button fly versus zipper fly, and one of the drawbacks of zippers is uh, shrinkage in fabric, and how that can make zippers not set as well if the fabric's not pre-shrunk. Sure. Is that something that was sort of done hand in hand at the same time where there was more pre-shrunk clothing that was more amenable to using zipper as a closener? Yeah, I, I think the very first, probably the very first uh, years of, of, of people putting zippers in, in flies of jeans, I'm sure they weren't, they weren't, you know, compensating for that with the, they weren't shrinking the fabric. Although, mm-hmm. I mean, even at the time, I think Lee, Lee was all right. Well, no, not in the twenties. In the '30s, Lee came out with yeah. you know their their um, Sanfrai shrunk. Jilt Sanfrai's, right. yeah, it was they're they're the first ones to do that. So, um, with with like for for example with Levi's, I think people prefer the fade that they get on 501 denim versus the pre-shrunk denim. Um, so, uh, I think, but at the time, you know, it seemed like a lot, you know, it, much more important to have the fly sit right. So every, mm-hmm. everyone accepted the pre-shrunk, pre-shrunk fabric. Um, yeah, I get what you're saying. Is it's a thing that like people in the 40s and 50s weren't posting images of their fades on Superfuture. <laughs> um, they were purely interested in utility. And if it was a thing of like, oh, I don't have to size these correctly, and they have a zipper, and they cost roughly the same amount, of course, I'm going to buy the one with more features. Exactly. Exactly. It's only now that we look back and think like, oh, you know, I, I, I like that. I like that that five hundred one denim more mm-hmm. more than the the pre shrunk stuff, but at the time it seemed like a, a you know a very good idea. So, are there any Grail zippers that, uh, if you happen to come across a vintage garment and you saw some example of something, you would have been like, "Oh, that's that's noteworthy. That's important." Are there any brands or designs that you're looking out for? Well, hookless hookless is definitely like the gold standard. Um, you know, to find, to find the, the really rare oddball variations, um, from the twenties is, is definitely like for, for real zipper maniacs, that's the twenties the is sort of what they're looking for. Um, there's, there's mm-hmm. actually, because they weren't really commercially successful and because they didn't make their way into a lot of garments, a lot of the Playco and security that were made sort of were ne- they were never used they just kind of sat around so it's not nearly as hard to find a playco or a security zipper as it is to find uh like a palm zipper a lot of those oddball variations didn't succeed because there were problems with them so like palm a lot of times the teeth the teeth will come off of the fabric so you, if you find a palm zipper mm-hmm. it's probably broken it's got missing teeth um so to find those those ones from the twenties that aren't that even, even, you know, even to find the hookless ones from the twenties, it's, it's pretty hard, pretty rare to come up with them. But, um, those other oddball companies that were around at that time, it's, it's just, you know, 
they just don't exist. So yeah, um, dealers, uh. dealers and collectors go crazy when they find that sort of stuff. Into the 30s, there's a lot of, there were a lot of sort of novelty pulls, sliders that were made uh, for different things. Like there's, there's a talon slider that they seem to only use on uh, musical instrument cases. There's other ones by different companies that have like, they, they use them on tennis racket covers and they have little tennis rackets on them or, or things like that. So there's a lot, there, there's a surprising amount of variation, particularly in the sliders uh, in, in the 20s and 30s. And guys look, in specific, like novelty zippers. Right. And guys look for those. And how would you go about identifying one of these? Is it as simple as they have their, the company name printed on the, on the zipper pole? Or are there other details that you have to uh, investigate? A lot of times the name is printed right, is stamped right into the zipper pole. Sometimes on the front, sometimes on the back. Um, a lot of times they won't have the name, but they might have a patent number stamped somewhere on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's not, if there's none of that, a lot of times you can tell from the slider shape that the slider shape is the same as, uh, that company's later slider that, you know, you know, by that. So for example, a lot of the earliest hookless, uh, zippers don't have a mark, but if you look at like the very next generation, when they did start to mark them, the slider head will have the exact same shape. So you can tell. You can tell that way. Um, um, and you're going to have some sort of lineage and right, uh, right. where that's coming from. But then, you know, so as much as I know about zippers, I'm actually basically a, a, a hack compared to a few, a few of the, a few of the um, guys in Japan who've gotten really, really into it. And, and th- I mean, these guys are like, like looking at the metallurgy in different companies teeth and, um, and, and what made them, what made them work or not work. A lot, a lot of companies had problems with teeth popping off of tape and that, and it turns out it was because of, of the, the mix of metals, the alloys that they were using um, and, and were, were soft enough to be crimped on, but not, but, but not strong enough to stay on that kind of thing. So these guys are crazy and they go, they go like really deep into it. Um, and these guys will even look at the shape of the bump on the tooth um, the, the the size of the teeth they they can they can identify things that that aren't marked um, in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're talking about the uh, the guy that did Zipper Gear that book that you you mentioned to me earlier. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Alta, Mr. Alta. Yeah, uh, just looking at the screenshots of that book, it's uh, really really impressive. You know the the number of rabbit holes that still exist in this niche, even though I've been working in it for like almost ten years. Yeah. Still really, really impressed me. <laughs> so his story is kind of crazy. Um, he, he, was a, he, was, he was interested in vintage clothing and, um, and realized that he wanted to know the age of, of the zippers he was looking at. And he thought, well, I see a lot of zippers on military clothing. And if I, if I research the contracts of the military clothing, I'll be able to figure out how old the zipper is. So he, he went on like a 15 or 20 year stretch of researching military clothing from the 1920s to the 1940s and cataloging as many different contracts as he could that, that had zippers. And, um, he, he spent 
his holidays at the Smithsonian and at the National Archives and and pouring over books and 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 eventually computer files. Um, and after 15 or 20 years of that, he decided he should put all that information to use and came out with a book called Full Gear, which is all um, all the all the all the clothing that he had researched uh, from the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy, mainly Army, some Air Force, um, uh, and and it's it's a it's like a bible for military guys, especially flight jackets, um, flight jacket guys. It lists it lists like every contract for like every A two jacket produced. Um, it has information about a lot of the contracts. If you look at the label, it doesn't say who made them. It has all the information of who actually made them, where they were produced, when they were produced. Um, so it, it, that that became like the Bible for flight jacket guys. And then he, 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 he decided to take all that information and, and, and figure out even more of the background behind the zippers. And he spent the next 10 years, uh, in Meadville, Pennsylvania, where hookless was based. Um, and in Connecticut, where a lot of the other zipper companies were, um, Meeting, meeting these 80 and 90 year old guys who had worked in the factories, who had worked in the offices of talent of hookless, um, and and came out and came out with zipper gear, uh, which unfortunately it's all in Japanese, but there's still there's still a ton of information in there um, from the advertising that he puts in there, and even just from from the subtitles and things that you can that that are in English, um, and just just the pictures the pictures alone are are incredible. Um, mm, of the so he's sort of the, the godfather. He has a handful of, of sort of dis- disciples in Japan who, who are, who are, you know, kind of carrying it on. Uh, how big is the zipper community of, of other people that are, you know, have a equivalent amount of knowledge and are uh, collecting, you know, like a lot of things with, in the vintage clothing world, pe- people keep a lot of people keep their information very close to the, to their, to their vest. Um, Mm-hmm. So uh, I I I wouldn't I'm not sure that I can say how many of us there are out there because like most people don't even want to tell anybody you know what they're up to what they're doing what they know what they don't know um, as much as people nowadays want to share all their all their photos they also tend to like keep a lot of information to themselves mm-hmm. um, but um, I mean you know off the top of my head I can think of maybe five people who are really insanely deeply into it. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there are, you know, f- five or 10 times that. And, and then, and then, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are into it on some level, just because it relates to the clothing they collect. In terms of zippers themselves, is there a, a market for that of people swapping, you know, zippers not attached to garments? Yeah, sure. Yep. I don't know. Do you have any uh, estimate of, you know, what zippers can go for? What are the most expensive zipper that you've seen traded? I think I've seen Placo or security zippers on eBay bring maybe eight or $900. Um, you know, it's like, it, you could also find one on there. And I'm not talking about like a buy it now that just happens to be listed cheap. I mean, like some something that was put on there and went through a full auction and it, and it still might only go for, a hundred or two hundred dollars. It's just it's just depends on who's watching and and who 
who has one and doesn't have one at that moment. Or um, so, mm-hmm. you know, the next week after that, somebody else might have bought bought one equally well listed for for half that. Um, but at that mm-hmm. moment, there were just two guys who really wanted to have it and and were feeling flush. So, um, I think. More than Playcore security, as, as I said, Playcore security are end up being like not all that rare because they weren't because they weren't commercially viable. Um, but some of the other twenty zippers that 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 were successful um, and are and are kind of oddball variations, like weird sizes um, of teeth and uh, weird sliders or weird pulls. Um, those those I think tend to bring um, more money uh, if if you can find them and if you're willing to sell them. But so one of the guys one of the guys I'm thinking of in Japan who's a, a really serious collector just found um, probably the only example I've seen since Zipper Gear since the book came out of a zipper that's not in the book um, and it, mm. and it's actually um, it's a it's a zipper where the teeth on one side all have a nub and the teeth on the other side all have just a hole. So it's actually a different, a different type of tooth. Um, same idea, teeth going all the way up. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's the only, it's the only variation like that, that, that any of us have seen. And, um, and he bought that on Instagram for, I think maybe $500. And he was he was really thrilled that, he, that in his in his mind he got it really cheap. And the zippers that they buy in these uh, the, it's purely for collecting and for research purposes. Like no one's buying these zippers for hundreds of dollars and then sewing them into garments. Very rarely. I mean, guys will buy. So that that zipper was actually in, um, not a garment, but a, a little a little handbag, a little clutch bag. Um, but guys will buy, and they'll spend fair, you know pretty good money on a zipper uh, to put it into a, a piece of clothing they have that has a broken zipper maybe. Um, mm. So there, and that, that, that tends to be more like thirties and forties stuff. A lot of folks that I see in the you know, repro community tout about using dead stock zippers and uh, including those in their vintage inspired collections. Mm-hmm. Um, those wouldn't be zippers from that era, but something like uh, you usually see them in like talons or universals or things like that. Um, is there a big dead stock community of zippers or just like zippers hanging around in places for people to do this? Or is it also marketing gimmick that aren't actually dead stock? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've definitely found, I've definitely found um, loads of dead stock zippers a few times over the years. Um, and, and there were, there were, you know, like everything else, there were more places 10, 20 years ago than there are now, but um, but somebody sent me an, a link to an auction on eBay, on eBay yesterday of a bunch of a bunch of military zippers that were available, um, and they were from probably the fifties or sixties. Um, so I think you can you can find um, you can find zippers in quantity, say from the forties, fifties, sixties. It's pretty hard, and then to use them to use them in production is is hard because the you know you just find what you find and it's going to be in a certain mm-hmm. color tape it's going to be a certain length um is it a zipper that opens at the bottom like for a jacket or is it is it a zipper that's closed that you can only put in 
uh, a bag or pants or like that. So it kind of, if you're, if you're letting the zipper dictate what you're going to make, then you, then it's, it's a lot easier to do. But if you're trying to fit zip, fit vintage zippers into what you've already, what, you know, if the design is more important to you, what you're, you're coming up with a clothing design and then you're thinking, well, I'd like to use a vintage zipper in this. It's pretty tough. If you, if you want to look at the zipper and think, well, how can I use this? There's definitely, mm. there's definitely zippers out there. There used to be a place in Manhattan. It's, it used to be on, right on Broadway. And I think it probably closed maybe 2005 or definitely before 2010. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was right on Broadway in Soho. And it was two floors and a ba- basement, three floors of zippers. It was all zippers. It was a big, it was a huge space. And they were, you know, it was their business for, you know, almost a hundred years to wholesale, be wholesalers of zippers. Um, and, you know, I could, I went, I went in there a few times and poked around in the basement and found old, old stock zippers from the forties, fifties, but it, it was hard to find anything that you could really, really use. But the thing that they, the thing they did have there was a guy on the second floor with a little desk that he, he rented, he rented office space from them and he was a zipper repairman and, mm. and, and he could do, this guy had been around, this guy, when I, I met him in the nineties, now nah, maybe around 2000, he had been around, you know, in that, in that office for 50 or 60 years, I think. Um, and he could repair, you, you could, bring him a zipper that wasn't working. You know, you try to zip it up, it wouldn't go, or you zip it up and it would open, open underneath it. He knew, he knew exactly how everything worked. He knew what was, what was going wrong, how to, how to tweak, how to tweak the zipper. And I actually, I learned a lot from him that helped me be able to make little repairs on things and, and, and make zippers work that, you know, if I'm buying something and I'm, the zipper's not working and I can say, Hey, look, the zipper's not working. Maybe get it for a decent price and then be able to, to go and fix that zipper and make it work again without having to replace it. Um, but he, he was, he was amazing <laughs> and to hear him tell stories about, about, um, his time there was, was pretty interesting. Yeah. Like a little hammer and a little anvil and yeah, lots, uh, lots, of, drawers full of tape. lots of little tools and parts all around. Yeah. Uh, what kind of zippers do you use in your collection with strong arm? Uh, so we use, we use made in Japan zippers. Um, we tend to use, uh, either Talon or Walds, um, uh, which are obviously both, you know, being produced by a Japanese company that bought, that bought those names and is, is producing vintage style zippers under those names. Um, and, and, and they've, they've, they've remade a lot of the, a lot of the, the twenties, thirties, forties, um, sliders poles bases um but to be honest the teeth the the quality of the teeth is is just average um it's not they're not they're not what i what i what i hope they'll be um i'm still looking for for better quality zippers uh all the time Mm. they're the best that you've been able to find in the current market being made today uh that are accessible that are accessible to us there and the combination so i think there's probably better zippers from certain companies. Um, but those companies don't necessarily make those vintage style, uh, components like the, the sliders and the, and the, and the poles. 
uh, that would go with the uh, aesthetic of the clothing that you're making. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to ask about is it seems like a lot of different brands are touting their zippers and like name brand zippers, whether that's, you know, Riri or YKK or Scoville or something like that. Sure. Uh, could you speak to the differences in zipper offerings made today and how a you know average consumer could educate themselves to make a better purchase based on zipper copy and what's zipper fluff? Uh, well, I mean, I guess it depends on what type of garment you're talking about. So... Most of the zippers that I've seen in technical garments are probably YKK, and mm-hmm. um, like with their with their covered their covered zippers, the windproof and waterproof ones. Um, I mean, they seem to be they seem to be really effective. Again, if you're looking for clothing in the sort of uh, heritage market, the um, sort of repro world, you're going to see a lot of zippers made in Japan that that sort of look identical to the things made in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, and, the, and like I said, the look is very good. Uh, they've reproduced the look and, the, and the, the mechanisms, like the 30s, the 30s zipper that separates and has the rivets at the bottom and, and, and the extra parts in the base, that's all, been, that's all been reproduced with incredible detail quality. Um, but when you, when you put a zipper together and slide it up, you, feel, you can feel the difference instantly between an old one and a new one. Any favorite zippers in your collection or yeah, any other ones like that that, uh, I don't know, bring you joy in your zippers, in your zipping? There's a jacket I have from the, I would say, 26, 27. Um, that's, uh, it's made by Town & Country, which is, Town & Country was like sort of the, the sportier uh brand name used by um a company called summit that made like a lot of uh 1920s outdoor hunting um outdoor and hunting clothing uh really cool designs really really great quality um but i saw i don't know probably in the 90s i was at a flea market in pennsylvania about to leave and walking through this field and um a guy was throwing stuff out of his truck onto the ground and he threw this red wool jacket onto the ground and i and i walked over and picked it up and um and i noticed right away that it was a pullover it didn't zip all the way down but it zipped Mm. it zipped all the way down to the waistband and then stopped and i was kind of disappointed i was thinking ah i wish i wish it was a because you know typically a jacket that opens is better than a jacket that doesn't um Mm -hmm. but when i when i peeled back the placket and looked at the zipper i had never seen the zipper before and it's um it's a really rare uh, hookless, one of the first ones they made where they put their full name on the tab and it says the hookless fastener on this little, mm-hmm. on this little dangly um, uh, slider tab. Um, so that, that one is probably, it's one of my favorite zippers and the garment is really great and the memory of, of finding it is good. Sometimes I, sometimes I end up owning things that are really, really great pieces of clothing but the way that they came to me isn't so great, um, and it, it sort of it sort of sours <laughs> it sort of sours the connection. So it, yeah. if the way that I bought it came to buy it wasn't really a great experience, a lot of times I end up not keeping it. <laughs> I end up selling it because it just it doesn't have the same it doesn't have the same pull for me as things that mm-hmm. I have that are that that I really feel you know a connection to. If people want to get into strong arm, uh, where can they find you? 
the brand is actually in my name. It's John Gluckow, uh, Ancient and Modern Clothing. Strongarm is the name of my vintage clothing company. I have two Instagrams. One is uh, Strongarm Clothing and Supply, which I tend to use for, vin- for vintage things. And then John Gluckow, Ancient and Modern, is, um, is the clothing brand. And then uh, website, it's, it's through, the website is uh, my partner's website. His brand is called Gelato, J-E-L-A-D-O. And he has a website, gelato.com, um, where we will offer all the products for sale there as well. Well, and we'll link both of those in the description as well as uh, include a lot of the photo examples that you were kind enough to send over. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. Appreciate you taking the time and uh, yeah, learned a lot. Okay. Thank you, David. All right. Great. Talk soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, we're here at the end of the episode now, which I guess means that... Uh, this one had a good clasp on you. If you like what you've been hearing, uh, please go on and leave us a good review or or don't, but uh, leaving a good review will help us get listened to by more people and will help it you know, make it easier for us to record more of these. Also, if uh, you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions, our email is blowout at heddles.com, B-L-O-W-O-U-T at heddles.com. And as always, you can support the show by going and buying stuff at the Heddle Shop using the code BLOWOUT. Gets you 10% off your whole order. We also have a special exclusive of surf and turf wallets that are made with calf leather and vegetable tanned salmon leather. They are very cool looking. They are uh, almost like snakeskin, but without the cruelty of snake harvesting of the leather. This is like this was all uh, all the salmon leather was done with uh, fish like meat byproducts um, in Iceland and they were tanned using geothermal energy. It's about the most ethical animal skin you can use, and we put it on a wallet. It's surf, it's turf, it's great, and we will be back with more in the very near future. Bye bye.